Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. And welcome to Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House, and today we're talking to Jonathan Rice. More about what we talk about after we thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. The Scottish-American songwriter Jonathan Rice, he might have first landed on your radar through his duo Jenny and Johnny with his former partner Jenny Lewis, who he also would make music with in her solo career, very big part of each other's musical career. Jonathan Rice's story starts in Virginia and Scotland, where he spent time going back and forth for his dad's work. Each place had its own effect on his young musicianship. For example, Virginia embodied a typical mid-90s American teen experience where he loved Nirvana, actually had a first-hand encounter with drummer Dave Grohl, who lived nearby. In Scotland, Jonathan was surrounded by a huge family where music was front and center, and it wasn't uncommon for the family to gather. And uh, Jonathan, after spending tons of time practicing for the moment, would perform in front of his first audiences, his Scottish family. Jonathan discusses his early connections to the Saddle Creek music scene, which revolved around Connor Oberst of the group Bright Eyes, who uh, he claims Connor very much influenced his writing early on. Also talks about his 12-year relationship with Jenny Lewis and how his latest album, The Long Game, was inspired by times during their relationship, during the breakup, and the aftermath. And recently... This is very interesting. Jonathan has become known for his Instagram haikus, which he has published a book for, and it fills up most of his Instagram feed. Uh, and it's he talks about the hilarious haikus that he writes and the origin of um, the reason why he writes those. It's a real pleasure getting to know Jonathan during this interview. He's kind, attentive, generous. He has a great uh, dry sense of humor in his delivery, which shows up in his writing. Uh, in a case in point, the song Meet the Mother from The Long Game was inspired by an encounter he had with Bill Mor- Murray, like a conversation he had with Bill Murray, where Bill Murray just kind of mutters, oh, well, you got to meet the mother. Uh, and then Jonathan wrote a song about it. So we'll hear a clip of that song, and then we'll get to our conversation with Jonathan Rice on Basic Folk. You got, you got to, meet to meet the mother. Before you kiss the bride Before you take The longest ride Before the rice 
and flowers fly. You've got to meet the mother before you kiss the bride and see where she got those big brown eyes, those long, long legs, that sense of style, or a streak of madness ten miles wide. You've got to meet the mother before you kiss the bride. You could discover the cruelty. Jonathan Rice, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure. So you were um, born in Virginia, but you went back and forth between there and Glasgow, where your parents are from. Um, how did you take all that traveling when you were young? And like, how what was what did how did that work out? And how how long would you spend in each place? Uh, it really varied the amount of time that we spent in either country. I spent the majority of my life in the states, but. I spent formative, some formative years in Scotland and many formative times in my life in Scotland. It's just the nature of what my dad did for a living. And uh, What was that? Um, he, he basically uh, well, he started as a speechwriter in Washington, D.C. And then he um, would, would take the occasional sabbatical and work in Scotland. Would he write speeches for politicians? Not not politicians per se, but leaders of major institutions, mm. um, non governmental institutions. Yeah, he taught me how he taught me how to write. You know, uh, not necessarily poetic prose, but I was always watching him at his desk writing. Would you learn from him by osmosis, or would you actually like ask him specifically, like for feedback? Well, he would, I mean, he was very hands-on. Him and my mother were very hands-on with my education. So anything that I wrote would be proofread and and kind of, it would be graded by them before it oh, yeah. went, to, went to my teacher, you know? So I read that each place that you would spend time in made its own impact on you. And I'm interested to know what role the FM radio played for you in Virginia and like what time period were you listening to the radio? Well, I was born in the mid-80s, so the radio was was a big part of life. But I'm trying to remember, and music was a huge part of my life. My parents were really, really passionate music listeners. But specifically, the FM radio, when I, when I started to branch out on my own, I think it was the beginning of what they would call the modern rock format. And that was just... Basically, whatever bands they were playing on MTV, they were also playing on the radio, as far as I could tell. Hmm. Was that like um, the the mid to late 90s? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's around the time I became conscious of my own taste. And I loved Nirvana, just like everyone else. And we all knew that Dave Grohl was from down the street from where we lived in Northern Virginia. Oh, whoa. But I went to play street hockey, very authentically, um, with my friend Tommy in Springfield, Virginia. And my favorite band, by such a long shot, was Nirvana, and probably the Beastie Boys after that. And my my cousins in Scotland had my older cousins, who I thought were so cool, gave me a mixtape with the Beastie Boys and Nirvana on it. So I was, I considered myself very hip. <laughs> um, and I was playing street hockey with Tommy, and he said, 
you know the drummer from Nirvana? He lives, he lives just a, right over there. And he pointed at this house at the end of the cul-de-sac. And I said, yeah, right. No, he does not. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he does. Which, how much you want to bet? And I was like, you know, neither one of us had any hard currency at that point. But um, anyway, I, we went over to the house and we knocked on the door and just inexplicably, Dave Grohl answered the door. Shut up. No way. Absolutely. And this has been, <laughs> I've actually had the opportunity because my, I've led a, a blessed and extraordinary life. I've, I've had the opportunity to corroborate this with the man himself. And me and Tommy are standing there. And, you know, when you're a kid, everything feels like a bit of a fairy tale anyway. So, you know, Tommy was right. And I was very impressed. But he was visiting. He was off tour with Nirvana. This was during the Nevermind era. And he was off tour and he was just hanging out with his friends that he grew up with and uh, visiting his mother. But he was playing a guitar. And I couldn't understand why he was playing an acoustic guitar. And I said, you're a drummer. You're not supposed to... Do you also play the guitar? I didn't know that you could do both, you know? And he's like, yeah, I like to play the guitar too. At that point, were you playing guitar? I was, yeah. I was already playing, yeah. So then did that put a thought in your mind of like, oh, I can play other instruments? It did, but I... I never actually really learned to play any other instruments. I've fooled around on them, but I probably should have taken more inspiration from Dave Grohl than I actually did. I've heard he's like the the nicest person. That was certainly my experience. It's always been my experience through the years and the brief moments I've spent with him. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, your accent is um, very interesting, I imagine, like going back and forth between Virginia and Glasgow. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they're, and, and being around, you know, if you spend a lot of time in Glasgow, does your accent come back? Sure. Yeah, definitely. And even if I call my parents and talk to them for a while, you know. In Glasgow, you were around a lot of people making music. Is that true? Yeah, well, it's just a very, I would say that it's just a very casually musical culture. The, the Scottish culture and the Irish culture as well. And... The way that people speak, just the way that people speak to one another, I find to be very lyrical and musical. People are always playing with their language. They're playing with versions of slang and almost like a patois of, of sorts. They call it Glaswegian. And it's, it's, it's a very playful, um, idiosyncratic way of speaking. Can you give an example? Well, if you want someone not to do something... Yeah. You wouldn't say, don't do that. You say, go ni no de that. <laughs> I barely understood that. All right, mate, go ni no do that. Just go ni no, okay. Um, so, something like that. And yeah, it becomes so rapid fire and especially if there's alcohol involved, uh, there's, there's, it just becomes unintelligible to the, to the outsider. But anyway, there were always gatherings I had come from a big family, uh, a big, you know, Catholic Scottish family. And there's just always these nights where everyone's together. And it's, it just happens very naturally that a guitar comes out and people sing their song. And you're kind of expected to be able to sing your party piece when your time comes up, you know. And then, you know, as your personality is forming, if you're a kid and you... I always remember really liking the way that it felt for people to to sing for people. I always got a real charge out of it. 
and uh, really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot of old Scottish and Irish music because of the old people that would sing. My grandmother would sing a song and that she had learned from her grandmother and learned songs that were part of the Irish, the IRA resistance. Mm. Um, those kind of songs, political songs, songs about the Catholic genocide and songs about striking miners and striking weavers, uh, folk music, really. Mm. And, and the same, the same kind of folk music, I think that, uh, inspired people like Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan, you know, really all ancient music in a way. So how did those family gatherings affect your confidence in your own musical skills? Well, it was the first audience I ever played for. It was the first, the first people I ever played. I wasn't playing original material. I was just, I would, you know, I would, if there was a family gathering coming up, there'd be something to look forward to, be something to practice for. So I've noticed that you have a pretty stunning vocabulary just over, you know, reading interviews that you've done and wondering what has been the evolution of your connection to words and also, when did you think to set words to music? I was always pretty into words. And I think having a father who was a writer, my mother is also a voracious reader. My mother used to read the dictionary at night. My dad traveled a lot. And sometimes my mother and I would sit, I'd sit in my mother's bed and read the dictionary with her. That's so adorable and nerdy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if... if Whatever floats your boat, it, it really floated mine. <laughs> the dictionary gives you a real thrill. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does. It does, and then when you, yeah, I remember I used the word flabbergasted in an early, like a second grade story that we were writing, and the teacher was like, "How did you learn flabbergasted?" I was like, "It was in the dictionary. <laughs> you should check it out." <laughs> check out the dictionary. Tell me about the story about how you decided to pick up the guitar. Well, my father had a guitar. He had a Yamaha. I used to just open up his case and take the guitar out and strum it before I knew any chords. I just liked the way that it looked. I liked the way that it smelled. I liked the way the case smelled. I liked to take the guitar out of the case and climb into the case and sit in the case. <laughs> like a cat. Yeah, like a cat. I guess I also apparently spent a lot of time in the, in the dryer. <laughs> like a cat. Which, you know, maybe accounts for my sense of humor. Um, Very dry. I get it. Bad pun. And it won't be the last, it won't be the last during our, our brief time together. Um, but yeah, I, I just always loved the guitar. I saw that it was a way that my dad would kind of relax when he got home from work. He would play the guitar for half an hour or an hour or something, some nights, and I just loved the way that it sounded. It was a very magical-looking object to me. So my, my dad got me, I think, my first guitar when I was around nine. Did you have to ask him, or did he just get it for you? I can't remember if I asked or he just got it for me. We always just would go into... We, uh, I was the oldest of... I'm the oldest of four children, and... He was a music junkie, so he would just go to used CD stores on the weekend, um, music shops, guitar shops. We were always there. We were always around music and musical instruments. So I, I can't remember if asking for it. I remember wanting one. But he, he got me a cheap little 
kind of almost like a plywood guitar, like a real beginner's guitar.、Mm. And he got me some lessons. Then I would go to weekly lessons, which were not as enjoyable as learning songs by memory at home and stuff. But. Right. Can you talk about when you were 16 years old? I read that you discovered your singing voice. Yeah, I think probably what happened is I was just trying to imitate the singers that I loved, which at, the, at that time, around 16, I was starting to discover like British folk music. Not, not the older folk music that we were discussing earlier, but more the 60s and 70s. Like Fairport Convention? Fairport Convention, Nick Drake,、um, that kind of stuff. Even、uh, Bert, Bert Jansch and. That,、uh, you know, the light, joyful music. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, it always made me feel joyful. Or not, I don't know about joyful, but like. It just made me feel a way, a、mm. certain way, and, and I liked it. But yeah, I think I was just probably trying to imitate. And I was, always, I was also trying to sound older than I was. So, because I was, I thought that that would make me sound more authentic.、Mm. So, when I listened to my, my first record now, which was made when I was、um, like 19, you know, or, and 20 years old, vocally, I'm like, oh boy, you know, it, it, it sounds like it really. Feels、uh, affected to me in a way. Yeah. And as I've gone on, as I've just become more comfortable in my skin, which I think is, if you're lucky enough to live, you know, to, to stay alive, you hopefully become more comfortable in the skin, not、mm-hmm. less. Yeah, I think I've kind of gotten closer in the way that I sing now, it's closer to the way that I speak. And you account that just to being comfortable. And, you know, playing all over the world for half my life. Have you ever heard singers talk about how they really were able to learn how to sing because of like having like a good monitor in front of them to, so that they can hear what it sounds like?、I'm, I believe them. You know, I have no reason to disbelieve that, but that's certainly, I wouldn't cite that、yeah. as. For me, it's more if I can. Center myself and be present in the performance, whether it's in the studio or in front of people, I can connect with something.、Mm-hmm. And that to me is where, in that moment of connection, that's where I'm growing as a performer or as a musician or as a vocalist, whatever you want to call it. You decided that you weren't going to go to college, and your parents said, okay, you have one year to go and do music. How did that conversation go? It was much louder than that. <laughs> and there were many of them, and they all were varying degrees, very painful. Look, my parents are working class people. They came from very little in Glasgow. And、uh, my father worked very, very hard to, to make this incredible journey to America. We, 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 we are one of those families. Despite the color of our skin and everything, We, we are a, very much a part of that American immigrant story. And he, he basically took us up a couple notches on the ladder up into this middle class existence and all of the privilege that comes with that. And we, were, we grew up being very aware of that, or at least I did. And I always, always loved school. 
I took it very seriously. I took my education very seriously. I took reading very seriously. And I wanted for a very long time to lead an academic life and then and then find a profession that, that was simpatico with that, you know, like law or some, some field of social justice or something. But then, and this is going to sound, it's too much like a Lifetime movie or something. What happened was like, do you know what early acceptance is? At college. Like what, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was in my senior year of high school. I went to an all boy Jesuit school in Washington, D.C. called Gonzaga College High School. But uh, I went to the school. It's very rigorous, very well-respected place where like, you know, like presidential candidates and mayors and all this, you know, like it's like a prep school. And I committed to go to the University of Edinburgh. I wanted to move back to Scotland and study political science in Edinburgh. And I, I basically committed to, to, go in, uh, to, to go there in, I think it was October or November of my last year in high school, my senior year. And someone explained to me, because again, I, I'm the first of four children. I didn't, we were, I was the guinea pig for my family in terms of the American mm -hmm. educational system. We didn't know a lot about the whole college admissions process or anything like that. And, and my buddy explained to me, he said, you know, your early decision, you already got in. He's like, do you know how lucky you are? I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you don't have to get good grades anymore. <laughs> and I was like, that can't be true. That doesn't sound right. I don't know if I want to get bad grades. And he's like, you don't want to get bad grades, but you don't have to push yourself. This is the type of school where you get like four hours of homework a night, you know? Oh, yeah. You got no, no social life type of thing, which I quite liked, I must say. Anyway, I checked around with another few people and I even went up to one of the higher ups, went to a guidance counselor. I was like, is it true that my transcript from this point on will not be delivered to my college that I'm going to? And he basically said, Yes, but don't, you know, don't like start flunking out of your classes. Like, don't throw away. I was like, I'm not going to do that. He said, if you dip below a C, they might let them know. And I said, okay. So I was like, let's, if I can just get C's, I can focus more on playing the guitar all the time. And really what happened then, and this is the part that sounds too much like a bad uh, movie or something, but I started smoking weed and... I had always been afraid to, and I had always been so scared of it. And I'd been the first child I needed to be. I wanted to be like the good kid, good student, good son. And I started smoking dope in my parents' basement and listening to records in a whole different way, feeling music in a whole different way and writing lyrics in a very, in a very kind of freer way than I had before. And basically, you know, all the rumors are true. Drugs will stop you from achieving the goals that you set out for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but that is, it is true. And I, I started thinking a little bit differently and I started feeling a little more like, I guess I felt more like an artist than I did a student. And I was already playing around with my band in high school. I was already doing things, but I just had never considered it a career. And then I met some people who had d made the leap. They had just moved to New York and started 
playing out in the clubs and stuff like that. And I read some biographies of some other musicians who'd done the same. And I was just like, man, I can, it's not some remote thing. You can actually do this. And I just announced to my parents, I just said, I'm not, I guess, I don't think I'm going to go to college this year. I think I'm going to move up to New York. I'm going to make an EP with my buddies in Richmond, Virginia. And I'm going to try and get a record deal with a major label. I'm going to move to New York. And it was just, it was just, it was like a death in the family. Oof. It was, it was terrible news. I was setting a terrible example and they were just worried for me out of love, which is understandable. I'm grateful for that. But I just, there was just something in me, I think, that just refused to let go of that. And so I spent the summer working construction and whatever, you know, waiting tables and all that stuff and got a few thousand dollars saved and moved up to New York on the 9th of September, 2001. Oh, yeah. Um, two days before September 11th, which is like, my gosh. So what was your impression of moving to New York versus like what the reality was like, particularly during that insane time? Well, yeah, I mean, I will, I will never know what New York was like before 9-11. I just got there. I, I just got there. I can remember everything about September 9th and 10th. I can remember that they were just, it was, the weather was beautiful. I just couldn't believe my luck. I like lived in a tiny apartment on the Upper West Side. And then the attacks happened basically a day and a half into my tenure there wow and i will never i'll never forget that and it kind of it was yeah it was just i mean I, it's impossible not to internalize that experience mm -hmm. but as tragic as it was and it and is it was also extraordinary in terms of the way that people were kind to one another and the way that people treated each other so how did your New York life in the early days prepare you for the rest of your career? How did you feel set up after that? I think what happened is I was just very fortunate to meet some real artists as who who are making a living being artists and I just I was so young and so green and so impressionable that if I hadn't met those people and they hadn't influenced me in such a way I would have turned out a lot differently but I met uh, Jesse Harris, who's a songwriter from New York City. And through Jesse, I met Connor Oberst and a, a few other songwriters. And they really became my core group of friends for the next, you know, the next half of my life. Yeah, and that it sounds like Jesse was the one that kind of connected you to that I mean, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but just to briefly state, you were ready to go to college after you were in New York for a year, but then you get a call from Re Reprise Records in 2002, and then you were really thoughtful before you signed, um, which I'm really impressed with, instead of just like jumping at it. Oh, no, no. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I've said, maybe I said that self-consciously. <laughs> in an interview or something, but no, I, I, as I remember it, I just couldn't believe that it was real. You know, I had made this, I had made this EP in my friend's house uh, in Virginia, and I took like a thousand copies of that EP with me to New York to sell at my shows. 
Now, somehow, one of the EP copies ended up with this manager, Laurie Levy, in Los Angeles. And she sent it to an A&R man named Perry Watts Russell, who was departing from Capitol and about to begin uh, his career at Warner Reprise. And he got it. And he's like, oh, yeah, sounds like something that I would sign. And I and I, I was I had run out of money in New York City. I was back to waiting tables in Virginia and I was getting ready to go to college in the fall. And he offered me a record deal. They flew me out to Los Angeles where I had never been before. And I flew to Los Angeles when I was shortly after my 19th birthday. And I remember calling my parents from the Standard Hotel where I lived for a couple of weeks on the Sunset Strip. Didn't know a single soul in Los Angeles. I remember calling my dad and said, well, they, they're offering me a record deal and he, I've also hired an attorney and the attorney is going to explain to you that it's not a lie, you know? <laughs> I hired an attorney to talk to you. <laughs> Well, in a way, I was just like, just, I mean, just so you know, like, if this is a real thing, no one's trying to take advantage of me. Yeah. I mean, record labels are always trying to take advantage of you, but, but, uh, yeah. you know, not, you know, not on the face of it, but, um, and, and we just all, we all collectively as a family, we just couldn't believe it. It was, it was exactly what I wanted, mm. but, I, but I can't say that there was any intelligent strategy behind it. It was just sheer luck and coincidence. Mm and uh, good fortune. And so basically what happened then is I, they gave me a chunk of change, which was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And I used that money not just to record and learn how to be a musician in the studio, but I, it meant that I didn't have to get a job and, and work. Mm. And I basically spent the next couple of years learning how to live as an artist on my own. Can you talk about how that Saddle Creek scene and the Connor Ober scene helped shape you as an artist? Well, it definitely did. And I was very inspired, particularly by Connor, because I met, think I met Connor on his 22nd birthday. And I knew about his music. I, I already had his music, but we became friends very quickly. And you just couldn't not admire the kid. He was just doing it all on his own terms, completely on his own terms, him and all of his friends. And he, just as a writer, he was so advanced that he didn't really feel like a peer to me. And I was writing very melodic songs and the melodies were coming easier to me. But the lyrics, I think I would often just paint by numbers with the lyrics. When I met Connor, that no longer became acceptable to me because he was taking such chances as a lyricist. He was so daring hmm. and so, so original. Um, and then, you know, he, there, there would be these nights where, you know, everyone would have a guitar, similar to the nights that I spoke about earlier with my parents' friends as a child, but this is more of my peer group. So it's myself, Connor Oberst, Jenny Lewis, Dave Don Darrow, Ben Queller, whoever might be there on a given night in the East Village or in Brooklyn and everyone, and, and you're expected to sing your song. Well, I didn't want to sing some song that had Moon and June lyrics. <laughs> and I didn't want to, 
you know, I wanted to go toe to toe, but I, I think I was, I was still much greener than them. They were a bit older than me. They had done more touring, they'd done more recording, and they were just very much following their own star artistically. And I uh, definitely became instantly aware of that and wanted to learn from them as much as possible. You know? That's so cool. Now, Jonathan, I have a couple questions about the 12-year relationship that you had with Jenny, but, like, nothing personal. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So you met Jenny Lewis from being around that Saddle Creek scene. Um, uh-huh. and, and your new record, The Long Game, is about the end of that 12-year relationship. Uh, and it seems like it was kind of inevitable that you would end up making this record. And I'm wondering, how did you feel about starting this process of creating this record versus how it actually ended up for you internally in terms of, like, was it daunting to begin with and then it turned out differently? No, I wouldn't say that it was daunting. It's just, it's a record about acceptance. And the thing that I like about this record is that I myself, as the writer, the songs span the time before our relationship ended, before Jenny and I's relationship ended to the time that it was ending to after the time it to to the to the time after it was over <laughs> and then by the end of by the end of the record i've and and at that part of my life i was in by the end of the recording sessions of the record i was in a new relationship i mean listening to it it sounds very brave do you feel like it was a brave thing to do um i I would be hesitant to call myself brave for writing folk songs. (laughs) You know what I mean? I I think if you're an artist, you've got to write. I know what you mean, but I think it's like these emotions that you're coming head on with. I feel like normal people, quote unquote, normal people would be like, I'm not going to face this and just sort of tuck it away. Somebody that I have a lot of respect for very special person who I don't know very well, but who knows me very well, who was in my life for a very brief period before she completely disappeared. She said, merge with the pain and you'll heal faster. No follow-up questions. Interview over. Great. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's so good. So I, I, I can't say that I followed that mantra every day or every step of the way but that's definitely something that's stuck in my mind and it's something that i i strove to do in life and in in writing and in playing you know your producer tony berg who also i talked to ethan gruska on this podcast and he worked with tony a lot yeah yeah um tony seems like an awesome person to work with um, and he did something interesting where he encouraged you to drop your vocal range um, and you were talking about earlier how your singing voice on is more like your speaking voice currently what was that process like for you and you know were you all for this idea before had you tapped into that voice yeah I had been experimenting with it and there's little flickers of it on other records of using what I would call my baritone register of my voice, which is, like I said earlier, more more like how I speak. But 
Tony saw when I brought in the song. Some of the songs that I brought to Tony were already there. Like the long game was already in that register. Uh, a couple other songs were in that register, but he said, "Let's let's get all the other songs as close to that as possible." And it's, it, it sounds it sounds so simple, but this is what a good producer does. It's a it's a real simple idea. If you start off low, if you start off nice and low. You have somewhere else to go, so you can add. You you know you can, you can make your song more interesting as it goes on, hmm. vocally. Mm-hmm. Simple, but a lot of people sometimes don't do that. How do you feel like singing in this lower range for all of your songs? Since your singing voice is more like your speaking voice, are you able to connect more emotionally with? with like who you are as a person while singing these songs like the Ab- absolutely i definitely just feel very very much myself my eyes are open when i sing now i used to spend years with my eyes closed you know as cliche as that sounds it's very true i was afraid of the audience in a way and a lot of that comes from my years with jenny cuz jenny and i you know we weren't just romantically involved we were musically involved deeply deeply musically involved in she was involved in my work heavily i was heavily involved in her solo career from rabbit fur coat all the way through the voyager and i had a very strange relationship with her audience a lot of those kids like she you know jenny had and has a really really passionate fan base which is wonderful and the majority of them are are wonderful people but Elvis Costello once told Jenny and I he said when you be careful when you mess with other people's fantasies and but what i mean the reason i point that out is people people in the audience knew that i was with Jenny so there would sometimes be a very jealous or negative reaction oh, so from wild. those from those people Yeah. And even though we were make the you know they they didn't know what my contributions were or were not to her music. They were just like is this the guy that's going to break up Rilo Kylie? Is this the guy that's going to like like you know like a Yoko trip hmm. in the early years. You know, th- just stuff like that. So a lot of times I was kind of scared of those kids and they definitely <laughs> for some for some of the earlier when i was younger and more insecure i think they kind of colored the experience for me and, and, and as a performer i think i retreated into myself a little bit more wow and now that in recent years has just completely melted away which i'm very grateful for wow it must must feel good to be able to recognize that yeah yeah and it's also just again like it's a journey of being comfortable in your own skin it, it's totally. it's it's i you know it's not anybody else's fault it's not any it's not some kid in the audience's hmm. fault you know it's right. just it's more it's more about finding finding yourself as cheesy as that sounds so this this kind of plays into the topic of that a little bit so tony your producer insisted that you build the record um around the feeling of aloneness that he heard in the material Um and after your relationship with Jenny ended, you spent much of the next year alone. Um after that experience of being alone, what are your feelings about spending time alone and how have they changed? 
Spending time alone is essential, I think, if you're an artist. It's very clear to me now, and it's nothing that I regret, and I wouldn't change it because I love my life. I'm very grateful for my life and everything that has happened in it. But I merged too closely with Jenny and her work that I neglected my own for some time. And I'm very grateful for the work that Jenny and I did together. I'm very proud of it and there's so much of it. But it wasn't until I made this record that I really, really got back in touch with my own writing, my own perspective, and what it means to be a performer alone on the stage or alone before a microphone. And that's what Tony wanted from me. It's what he got from the material. And I always wanted to make a record that I could perform all over the world, just me and the guitar. And the hard truth of it, and I know it, so I assume everyone else knows it, I never had a group of songs that were good enough to make a record like this. But now, but, but now I do. And, or, or, and, and, or then I had them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I, I do believe that they, every song on this record can stand up, just me and the guitar. So about writing this record, you said it was probably the most effortless writing process I've experienced because my emotions were very accessible to me. Can you talk more about like what that experience was like for you to have your emotions so out in the open? It's, it's inescapable. Again, that person's advice who said to merge with the pain. I think everybody's different, but everybody, we all avoid things. Sometimes we avoid the thing that's closest to us and that's hanging over our head, the sword of Damocles or whatever. And I think for a, when you're in a relationship that's disintegrating, there's a part of you that doesn't want to write about it, doesn't want to engage with it. And then when it ends and the hammer actually drops, you can't control it. When going through that experience and the hammer drops and you can't control it, because like, like, I've had a pretty terrible breakup and at times and I find myself being like, you know, my emotions are like out in the open and I'm like the most annoying. Like in retrospect, I like think about myself and I'm just like the most annoyingly open hearted spiritual person in, in the room. I don't know if you had that experience or not. Um, I think I talked to my friends ears off collectively for a <laughs> So often I lean, I lean so hard on certain friends. I'll always be grateful for their patience and their counsel and their comfort. I'd always write songs to try and make someone else feel better. And I've always been the type of person to be a nurturer to others, I think. And this was the first time I wrote songs to make myself feel better. All right, let's talk about the haikus. Um, A few years ago, you started putting haikus on your Instagram. So it's like screenshots of like the notepad on an iPhone. Can you explain your reasoning behind using that like image-based platform to share these? I I was a latecomer to Instagram. I think my first gram I could be mistaken is 2013 or 2014. 
I never really got the hang of the selfie. I've, I've, <laughs> I, I, I don't judge anyone else for doing it. I mean, I do for sure, but I, but you, you know, I, I try and keep those feelings to myself. I just never really loved sharing images of myself. I like looking at pictures of other people, but myself, if, if, if I just. I'm I'm the oldest millennial. I'm 1983, so I'm the first year I think of the millennials. I think 82, I, I, right? 82, right okay. here. Yeah, I'm the oldest yeah. millennial. You're the oldest. Okay. <laughs> well, so yes. So I think I've spoken to others that are like us, and I feel like we have a little bit more self consciousness, and we remember a little bit too much about what it was like before. So yeah, th- this kind of stuff doesn't come as easy. So. I, st- I just started thinking about filling up my whole Instagram grid with these little poems that were making me laugh in a very sad time in my life and were making my friends laugh. And I just liked the idea of it being the, sh- the haiku is so brief. It's so to the point and it's so disciplined within its, its structure. And uh, I just, it just was a fun kind of mental workout. And I also figured that it wouldn't make too, it wouldn't piss too many people off <laughs> because, because it's, it's so short that it doesn't take up that much of your time. It's perfect for scrolling through. And I liked the idea of writing di- what I call dystopian haikus mm-hmm. because, because the haiku was originally designed by Jap- the Japanese masters. They would... Uh, so somebody gave me a book called Japanese Death Poems. And uh, these are Zen monks on the verge of death writing their last poems. And so I'll read one. So this was written by Hokushi, who died on the 12th day of the 8th month in 1718. I write, erase, rewrite, erase again, and then a poppy blooms. That's like a a monk on the on the verge on the verge of death wow. writing something something very beautiful that always involved nature. Uh-huh. Haikus are generally meant to evoke nature. I was like, mine should be about brunch <laughs> and passively passive aggressively unfollowing your ex like five times. Yeah, in one day. Oh my god! You know stuff like that. I, I liked <laughs> I like the idea of poems written from the perspective of someone who's trapped inside of a smartphone and cannot escape. It's really clever and really funny. And that really comes across pretty clear in your haikus is your sense of humor. Well, that's the, that's again, that has to do with this process of becoming comfortable with myself. For many years, I kind of, I, I was stuck in the, what I consider to be a withered archetype of the singer songwriter, which is a sad white male with hair in his face who just can't fucking stop whining. Those were the people that I admired. Those were the people that I, whose records I collected. And they, a lot of them have made such great work, but so many of them died prematurely. So many of them led unhappy lives or lead unhappy lives. And uh, I think for me, I'm just not, I, I, as I come to accept who I am, I'm not that. I'm not only that. And I'm pretty much a goofball (laughs) and I don't, I no longer care who knows it. Can you talk about working that mix 
in your humor and like kind of being a goofball into your songwriting. You've talked a lot about how Meet the Mother was your attempt at bringing in that humor and you do in a really clever way. Was that hard to incorporate humor there without being trite? I don't think so. I think it's just, I guess, the evolution of being a writer. That song, hap- that song happened very quickly. But I would, you know, it wasn't just sitting around waiting for me to write it. I, it had to be written after. I, I, had, you have to, I had to write a bunch of kind of mediocre, serious songs to get to a funny one, mm. you know? Yeah, can you talk about, you have this really funny quote where you said, bad writing is also important. You got to write some real garbage sometimes. Can you make a case for bad writing? Yeah, I think well, you got to write a lot. I think, you know, if you're a fisherman, the more, the more you go fishing, the more fish you'll catch. So I think that's true to a certain extent for writers. And the more you write, the more you're going to learn about writing. That's really what I'm talking about. Mm. And uh, it's important to write every day, even if it's in your head, to turn, or turn an idea over a couple of times or try something. And Meet the Mother came out of a period where I was very, very, as soon as I woke up, uh, before I made coffee, which is very soon after I wake up, I, I, before I allowed any substance into my body besides water, I'd write the first thing that came into my head. And I, had, I just had my, my laptop open and typed in whatever stupid phrase was rolling around in my head first, when I first opened my eyes in the morning. And that's, a lot of the Meet the Mother song came out of that exercise. Reading about your career in Los Angeles, you spent a lot of time around famous people, um, working with them and just like being around them. That Meet the Mother song has roots in you talking to Bill Murray at one point. Um, What is your impression of fame and what it does to people? I think that fame is an incredibly toxic substance that most people are very allergic to. And I think that if you don't, if you can't get your arms around it, it, it'll it start running your, your programs for you, start running your software for you pretty quick. And it, and it probably won't end well, you know? Mm. Um, there are some people that I've met that have handled it with incredible grace. And, you know, those people are really sophisticated beings. And there are other people who I've known and loved that are no longer here because of it and uh, or partially because of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it most people want to be famous, but it's most people are very lucky that they're not. Jonathan, can you talk about the place that you live now? Uh, sure. I live in Malibu, which for those of you that are unfamiliar with Los Angeles, it's at the end, it's at the western edge of L.A. County. And it's basically the beach. And the population of Malibu has stayed pretty much level despite the massive explosion of population in the rest of Los Angeles. <laughs> that it, It's a pretty level thing. It's pretty much a small, isolated beach town on the edge of Los Angeles. And it's very hard to get here because of the traffic. It's also very hard to leave here because of the traffic. <laughs> so most most of us who live, it's like, it's like the Hotel California. Um, <laughs> so most of us who live here to stay here because it is remarkably, breathtakingly beautiful. beautiful. And uh, 
Malibu is the Chumash Indians who lived here. Uh, Malibu in their language means where the sea sounds loudly. And I've lived here for a little over a year. And it's been an incredibly beautiful time, but also a very tumultuous time because my girlfriend and I, we were displaced by the Malibu fires mm. in November. And our house didn't burn down, but um, a lot of our neighborhood did burn down. And many, many homes in this community did burn down. And we've been going through that process. And, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, a massive natural disaster, uh, the biggest in Malibu's history. And uh, it's been really incredible. And it's been sad. It's been it's been also very wonderful to see how everyone takes care of each other but it's it, it's been quite a time here stick around we're gonna do the lightning round and it's gonna be great you ready for it i am okay here we go we'll be right back basic folk is brought to you in part by tina and her pony a queer duo bringing traditional appalachian music and vocal harmonies into the 21st century visit tina and her and thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Jonathan Rice, are you ready for the lightning round? I am. How fast do I have to answer stuff? <sighs> Not too fast. I mean, like lightning. But lightning is so fast. Right. But it's only a centimeter thick, I heard. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. Well, a centimeter thick is okay. the, how short your answers will be. Okay, here we go. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Pour over. Favorite U.S. city? New Orleans. First album you bought with your own money? Maybe Michael Jackson's Dangerous? Beatles or Rolling Stones? The Rolling Stones. Morning person or night owl? Night owl. Gibson or Fender? Gibson. Flying or Invisibility? Invisibility. Star Trek or Star Wars? I haven't seen either. Wow. Um, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? The Scottish Highlands. Great. Jonathan Rice, you've completed the lightning round. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. You were so generous with your time. We went over. Oh, no worries at all. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey and Laura McCarthy. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Our business manager is Lindsay Myers. Our music done by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. And we'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you subscribe to Basic Folk, if you tell people about this episode of the podcast, sign up for the newsletter or you can sign up for the Facebook group Basic Folk Basics. You can find show notes and all the other episodes at cindyhouse.net. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.